Let's pray. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deed, doing wonders? You have led us in your steadfast love, redeemed us in your mercy, and guided us by your strength. You, O Lord, will reign forever and ever. Speak to us now that we may know you here and live with you in the promised land to come. In Christ we pray, amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. It says in the bulletin, verses 1 through 9, but we are going to do verses 1 through 28, just focusing on a couple of those verses, but we will look at all of them, and you can follow along as I read. This is page 74 in the Pew Bibles in front of you, Exodus chapter 34, as we near the end of this three-chapter interlude with the sin of the golden calf and now the restoration of God's people, beginning at verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvel, such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat. 
of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the time appointed in the month Abib. For in the month Abib you came out from Egypt. All that open the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, for I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the sacrifice at the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in his mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. These 28 verses can be divided into three sections, God's character revealed, God's covenant restored, and God's commandments restated. I want to quickly just show you what's here and go through those three sections, and then we will spend most of our time going back to the first. So first, in verses 1 through 7, we have God's character revealed. You remember at the end of chapter 33, Moses asked the Lord, would you show me your glory? And Moses saw, quote unquote, saw the backside, the, the afterglow of God's glory as he hid him in the cleft of the rock. And what he saw was actually what he heard as the Lord proclaimed his goodness. You see up in verse 19 of chapter 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord. Now, he will see again by hearing. This is the way the Bible usually works. We see as God's people by hearing from God, and God will reveal to him again, and now even more fully and more completely. In fact, perhaps on this far side of the cross, it is the fullest verbal declaration of God and His character. God's character revealed. Then we come to God's covenant restored in verses 8 through 16. Moses asks again, will you go with us? And finally, we get a firm answer. God will go with them, and the covenant will be restored. You may see at the top of verse 10, it gives the heading, the covenant renewal, and it is a sort of covenant renewal, but it's not a covenant renewal as we see elsewhere in Scripture when God's people sort of re-up the ante and say, yes, we're still in for doing this. It's more than just a renewal, as we may do week after week in a covenant renewal worship service. It is really a covenant restoration. It's a covenant reconstitution because it had been broken. It had been literally ground up into powder 
the golden calf, and now it is being reconstituted. And you notice, as the covenant is being renewed or reconstituted or restored, God again makes promises. He makes big promises. He says in verse 11, I'm going to drive out the nations. He's promised that before. He says in verse 10, I am going to do marvels. They've already seen wonders in God's hand leading them out of Egypt and God providing water from the rock and manna and quail from heaven. And now God has the audacity again to say, you're going to still see things you've never seen before. No nation has ever seen. God's making promises. When you make a covenant with God, it must be an exclusive covenant. And so verses 12 through 16 warn of the dangers of syncretism, of compromise. You cannot be wed to any other God. The covenant that we're most familiar with in our day is the covenant of marriage. And when you make that vow, you promise to be faithful to one another, and you say the words, I hope you do, forsaking all others. Now, normally, to forsake is a bad thing. Don't forsake me. But when you get married, it is the positively right thing to do because when you look him in the eye or her in the eye and the minister stands there and you repeat after him, you ought to promise that you will be faithful to this spouse and forsake all others. You have eyes for no one else. You will love no one else like you love your husband or your wife. And so it is with this covenant with Yahweh. Forsake all others, no other gods. He has heard the prayers of Moses, and he will give the Israelites another chance. It's as if he is saying, welcome back. Let's give this another shot. I've heard the prayers a mediator has stood in the gap, Moses, and I will go with you. The covenant will be restored. And then the third scene is in verses 17 through 28. We can call God's commandments restated. If you've been here for uh, other parts of the series in Exodus, most of these commandments should sound familiar to you. Some of them are repeated verbatim. What we have here really is a smattering of the case laws that are based upon the Ten Commandments. Remember, we first saw the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. That's why it's called Decalogue, Deca, Ten, Logos, Word, the Ten Words. That's literally what they're called here at the end of verse 28, but we know them as the Ten Commandments. We saw that first in Exodus 20, and then following in Exodus 21 and 22 and 23, we have a series of, of case laws. If this happens, then this, and when this happens, and, and, and how, how do these, these grand overarching principles apply our lives. So here again, we have a taste of them, a few examples of how to apply these commandments. So verse 17, for example, has to do with the second commandment. Verse 21, with the fourth commandment. Now, it may seem like a rather haphazard list of obligations, like Moses is just sort of, you know, pulling them from his pocket or the Lord's just, you know, kind of rattling a few off the top of his head, um, you know, keep the feast. And, uh, you know, don't make any metal images and um, the, the, the milk with the goat and the mother, that thing again. And what, what semblance of order do we have here? Well, there's more than you might think. What joins these commandments together is that they all have to do with the issue of trust. Because what fundamentally has Israel proved faithless to do? They have proved faithless 
entrusting their God. They forsook Him. They were not true to the promises they made in Exodus 24, where an oath in blood, they said, all that you command of us, we will do. But they didn't trust Moses. They didn't trust a God they couldn't see. They didn't trust a God who was so different from the gods of all the other nations. And so these commandments are getting to the heart. In the midst of all these things that seem kind of strange to us, that's what it's about. Do you trust me enough to put away other gods? Do you trust me enough to worship where I tell you to worship, to worship as I command you to worship? Do you trust me enough to give me what is first from your flocks, to give me what is best from your harvest? Do you trust me enough, here's the hardest one perhaps, to rest? Do you trust me enough to rest? And don't you love, I was struck by what it says in verse 21, in plowing time and in harvest. Okay, get rest when there's not a lot to do and you need a little break, but he goes out of his way to say, when you're plowing, you've got the busiest time there, you have to get, there's just a window to get the seed in the ground, and in the next busiest time, when you're harvesting and you've got to get it up before the rains come or the hail come, in that busiest season, do you trust me enough to rest? This is a representative sample of commands, sufficient to apply the Ten Commandments to the specifics of life. And once again, we see how these ten words, these ten commandments are set apart as a unique paradigmatic expression of the divine law. So, so these commandments are written on tablets of stone. Again, why two tablets? Not as we tend to think because you've got commandments one through four on one tablet and five through ten on the other, but two tablets because in the ancient Near East, when you made a covenant, you had a copy for you, a copy for the God. So a copy is going to be for you, a copy is going to go in the Ark of the Covenant. Two copies, two tablets. And you see something about the nature of written revelation. This could be a whole other sermon, but I just pointed out to you. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first. So God says, I will write the commandments on the tablets. So who's going to do it? God says, I will write it. But you come to verses 27 and 28, and it says, the Lord told Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you. And the end of verse 28 says, and he, that is Moses, wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant. So who wrote the Ten Commandments on those tablets? Well, it seems that Moses somehow, he, he was the one physically with the chisel who was writing these out. And yet God can say, I will write them. And so it is when we understand what is the nature of Holy Scripture. God wrote this book. And men sat down with pen and parchment or papyrus or something and, and wrote out the words. They used their minds. They used the dexterity of their fingers to write. And in doing so, it was no less the very writing of God. We see it with the Ten Commandments, and it's true of the Scriptures. God's character revealed, 
God's covenant restored, God's commandments restated. Now, I want to go back to the first scene, and in particular, to the two most famous verses in that scene, and I want us to focus on verses 6 and 7. These are two of the most important verses in the whole Bible. We've already had God's glory and His goodness passed by Moses, but now we have, I would argue, the fullest revelation of God in a book that is all about the God who makes Himself known. God has made Himself known through plagues and through water and through food from heaven. He has made Himself known in innumerable ways, and now we have the fullest revelation of this God in this declaration of His character. We know it's important from the setting of chapter 34. God tells Moses, I want you to get ready. I want you to get up in the morning. I want you to come to the mountain. No one is to come with you. No one can see you. This is so important. This is so holy. This is so dangerous. I don't even want sheep and goats and cows in the vicinity because if they look through, they may die. And I want you to get two more tablets and meet me on the mountain. And then it says, the Lord descended. And as He often does in Exodus, He descends in this glory cloud resting upon the mountain. And we know that this is significant because of how often this declaration or the phrases in this declaration appear in the rest of the Old Testament. This statement of God's character or, or aspects of it occur in Exodus 20, Exodus 34, Numbers 14, Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 7, Psalm 86, Psalm 103, Psalm 111, Psalm 145, Nehemiah 9, 2 Chronicles 30, Isaiah 63, Jeremiah 32, Hosea 2, Joel 2, Micah 7, Nahum 1. It is all throughout the Old Testament. Remember, it's what Jonah says when he is ticked off at the Lord for being nice to the Ninevites. Remember? Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now, listen, of all the excuses in the world, this is surely one of the worst that has ever been made to God. Okay, he's upset. Because he had to go, and now he just says, God, I told you so. I, I didn't want to go there in the first place because I know that you're gracious and you're merciful, and I had a feeling something like this might happen. <laughs> I may go to the Ninevites, and they might repent, and you might not destroy them. So how could you blame me for going to Tarshish? Let's not be as clueless as Jonah. These verses, 6 and 7, are absolutely essential and indispensable if we are to have a true understanding of what God is like. And really, with whatever you have in your life, and I know some of you have very deep pain, struggle, really hard waters you're going through, but this is true. There is nothing, nothing you need more than to know God, than to know who He is, than to know what it's like. Now, there's other things, and you need people, and you need hugs, and you need food, and you need all sorts of things, but more than anything, we need to know this God. And here we have, indispensably, 
this declaration in verses 6 and 7. You can't understand the God of the Bible if you don't hear what he says about himself in verses 6 and 7. It's like trying to understand America without knowing anything about the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and endowed by their Creator with certain and inalienable rights. Among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Has uh, this country always done a good job at living up to those ideals? Certainly not, but you can't really understand America without knowing those words. You, you can't understand what the whole Star Wars franchise is like. May the fourth be with you. You can't understand what Star Wars is like if you don't know that Darth Vader is actually Luke's father. Spoiler alert, sorry, sorry. I was saying, what? I didn't know, okay? There's just you, you, some things you have to know or the rest of the story doesn't make a lot of sense. If we don't know this about God, we don't know God as God wants us to know God. We need to understand these two verses if we are begin to understand who God is and what He is like. So look at verse 6. The Lord passed before Him and proclaimed His name. He repeats the divine name. Yahweh. Yahweh. Now don't you wonder what it sounded like? We don't know. We don't have an audio recording. We don't, we don't know the intonation. We don't know exactly what it was. Perhaps it was a, a very stately, royal declaration. The Lord, the Lord, maybe would have been fitting. Maybe it was said with great pathos and tenderness. And I don't know for sure, but you do see something of a pattern in the Bible when a name is repeated. It doesn't happen all that often. It's maybe six, seven, eight, ten times in the Bible that somebody gets their name repeated. And when it does, it, it, it tends to be a moment of, of great emotion, sometimes great tenderness, sometimes great sadness. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Martha, Martha, why are, you, why are you busy with so many things? David weeping over his son, Absalom, Absalom, would that I would have perished and you could live. So I don't know for sure, but I hear this in my mind as a man speaks to his friend. We've already heard that, right, in the previous chapter? That Moses so knew the Lord that he spoke to him as a man spoke to his friend. And so perhaps he repeated the divine name with great thunder and lightning. It would have been appropriate. Or perhaps it was also with tenderness and great intimacy, reminding Moses, reassuring Moses. L like, like you might walk into your child's room as she's afraid of the dark and disoriented in the middle of the night and say, Dad, it's, it's Dad, it's Dad. Mom, Mom. You know, say, Mother, Mother. No, you, you want them to know, I'm here, I'm with you. 
It's me. It's me. So, ma- so maybe it was Yahweh. Yahweh. It's me. As a man speaks to a friend. And he, he, he gives five attributes. Isn't it interesting? Moses wanted to see an appearance, and God declares to him attributes. He says, I'm merciful. This God does not treat us as we deserve. He has pity upon us. He does not do to us all that would be in His right to do. He's merciful. He's gracious. He speaks of His demeanor towards us, His countenance towards us. You know when somebody is harsh, cruel, when children talk to each other and they're always always looking to to find the next thing that's going to get them in trouble. They're always looking to bring up the thing that they know mom and dad aren't going to be like. That's, just, that's, that's the opposite of this attitude. Gracious. He's compassionate, meaning He cares about us. He cares about your situation. He's not indifferent to it. He's tender, kind, gentle, never harsh, petty, cruel. And he declares himself as one who is slow to anger. Now, all first-year Hebrew students learn this, this little hidden secret about this phrase, that this slow to anger phrase is literally in the Hebrew, long of nose, Eric epayim, did you know? God has a big nose. That's what it says. The Lord is long of nose. What exactly did the idiom mean? We're not even positive. We can tell by the context. It means something like we would say, you know, someone is, if they're hot-headed or they have a short fuse, this is someone who has a a long fuse. They didn't have bombs and and fuses. They have a long of nose. It may be because someone long of nose can take a patient Deep inhale. They're not rash. They can wait. Or, one commentator said, it it may be because uh, short-nosed animals were the ones that snorted. Think of pigs and groveling around and sort of grumpy and angry, and that's not God. He's not a little grumpy warthog. He's somehow long of nose. He's slow to anger. Isn't that good? Some of us are the opposite. It just something sets us off. We butt, we blow. But God has got a fuse. And, and even though some of us light it, light it, light it, it takes a long time. Abounding in steadfast love, that great Hebrew word chesed, covenant love. You ask the question, does God love everyone? Sort of. People say, oh, God loves everyone. We're all God's children. That's not the way the Bible talks. Yeah, there's a sense He loves everyone. We're all made in His image. He, He cares for people. But in this special chesed, covenant, loyalty, love, God has this affection for His people. You notice what Moses says in verse 9, pardon our iniquity and our sin. Take us for your inheritance. 
though, if you know what we're really like, you'd say, God, that's a lousy inheritance. I want gold. I want cash. I want homes. I want cars. God gets us for his inheritance. This is what I want. This, in other words, this is, he says, you are my treasured possession, my inheritance, what I'm waiting for, what I'm longing for, my covenant love. It's a difference between how you love every child and how you may love your child. If you hear a child crying in a room next door and you rush in there and then you realize that it's someone else's child, no, you're, you don't say, well, hope you cry. No, you have some measure of compassion. Oh, are you okay, love? You do care for, but it's very different. It's very different if you rush into that room and you see your baby crying. Then it's immediately, are you okay? Are you okay? So God loves everyone in a way, but don't miss the special covenant love He has for us as His people. We're not just the baby everywhere that, oh, everybody loves babies, God loves babies. We're His crying infant that He wants to console, He wants to comfort, He wants to hold, He wants to love, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness truthfulness. He keeps His word. He remembers His promises. He never fails. We are prone to fickleness. He abounds, overflowing in faithfulness. Five attributes. And then you notice two things He does. One, He keeps steadfast love for thousands, and two, He forgives, or it could be translated, He lifts, He carries iniquity and transgression and sin. That's what He does. Do you notice how God reveals Himself in relation to our sin? Everything here has to do with, on some level, our sin. He's merciful when we sin. He's gracious when we sin. He has covenant love when we sin. He's faithful even when we're faithless. He is good to us when we sin. He forgives our iniquity. So listen, if you have no doctrine of sin, you won't have much of a doctrine of God either. This is the great irony and tragedy for so many in our world. They don't like the word sin. Okay, well, nobody's perfect. They don't want this doctrine of sin. They don't want to see human beings as dreadfully fallen, as selfish, as bent in upon ourselves. And in so doing away with the doctrine of sin, they do away with God Himself. They, don't, they can't know this God. They know a shell of a God. They know a truncated version of God. They can't know God as He wants to reveal Himself and has revealed Himself to us as one in the midst of our sin who is gracious and merciful and loving and long of nose and abounding in steadfast covenant mercies and forgiving our sins. And then we have the second half of verse 7. Two things he does, but then there's one thing he won't do. He will not clear the guilty. If we're honest, we'd like to stop halfway through verse 7. We feel like, I love this verse. This is so good. Love, mercy, step. Oh, this is beautiful. And then it kind of ruins it. Can we just sort of forget about the second half of verse 7? Uh, it was a lovely description of God, and then... He doesn't clear the guilty. What? 
it, it hardly makes sense to us. We think, well, which is it, God? You're, you're the God of mercy or the God of judgment? Because it sounds like at first it's all mercy, mercy, mercy. And then it's, I never let anything get away from me. Judgment. Which is it? And so many of us have a one-dimensional God, sort of cartoon God. You know, the villains in cartoons usually are one-dimensional. And they just have, you know, the eyebrows that go down like this. And whenever they come out, there's scary music in a minor key. And they laugh. <laughs> you know, they have a very sinister laugh. And they have very angular features. And you know that they're bad. And they're all bad and everything's bad. They're orcs. They're Saruman. They're Sauron. Or we have someone who's good and they're superhero. And they have powers and they're... Just helping, loving, lovely people. But we don't have a one-dimensional God. Many people in our world, they, they, I think of it like this. They, their God is either always walking with cookies or a clipboard. Okay, the clipboard God is the God who's sort of always, always looking over your shoulder, always noticing, always, uh-huh, yep, okay, and not good today. And how are you, mm, uh, 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 sorry, that's not looking good. Some of us have that understanding, just sort of God's just always, he's Santa Claus and he's keeping a list to find out who's naughty or nice. <laughs> and he's just keeping, uh, more of us have sort of the cookie God. He just walks around and just sort of, are you okay? Have a cookie. Everything okay? Oh, you messed up. Ah, go get him next time, tiger, have a cookie. Just sort of just, it's okay, it's okay, I made you cookies. Now, I love cookies, I love people who make cookies, but God's more than that. So many of us have a different confession than this one in verses 6 and 7. Here's what I think it would sound like if people in our culture would give an honest confession of God. Here's what they imagine God to say. <clears throat> And God passed before him and proclaimed, the listener, the listener, a God affirming and understanding, never angry and abounding in steadfast appreciation and support. That's it. Now, of course, there's, <laughs> there's elements there that we can affirm. God does listen. He does understand. He's slow to anger. He does support us. But if that's all, you don't have God as God wants to be known. You just have a God who's just a nice listener, just wants to affirm us, wants to help us, wants to get our life on track. That's not the God here. Mercy doesn't even make sense apart from justice. So how are we to understand verse 6 and verse 7? How do we solve this seeming tug of war? And, and some of us view God this way, sort of mercy, and then, then there's another part of God that's judgment, and they're sort of pulling, and then maybe what Jesus did was just kind of tip the scales for all time, and now the mercy part of God can win, and the judgment part of God can go away. Clearly, the God of the Bible is a God who has mercy on sinners, and clearly, the God of the Bible is a God who punishes the guilty. How does this work? Is it that mercy is sometimes stronger, sometimes judgment stronger? Or, or maybe it's just schizophrenic? How does this work? If you want to have verse 6, you've got to take verse 7. 
You can't even make sense of what it is to be mercy and merciful and gracious, unless he's a God who also takes sin seriously. So somehow in all of this, verses 6 and 7 are giving us the fullest revelation of God's character in the book of Exodus. So how do we make sense of it? This, I think, is the solution. Mercy, tug of war with judgment. Now, that's not, the, that's not the right way to look at it. There must be something of even more ultimate concern to the Lord. If you make these the, the, the poles in some bipolar God, it's just mercy, judgment, then they're just always warring with each other and one wins one day, one wins another day. You don't have God as He truly is. There must be something that is more ultimate that expresses itself properly in mercy and properly in judgment. And what is that thing that is more ultimate even than God's expression of mercy and judgment? Well, the answer is right in front of our face. It's right there in verse 5. He descended into the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name. The name of God and all of the honor and glory that must be upheld in the name of God is His chief concern. And from that concern comes God's great delight in showing mercy and God's justice in punishing the guilty. Have you noticed that when Moses' intercession gets somewhere with God, it's because he reminds God, and God doesn't need to know, but he reminds God of the glory of his name being at stake. Look at chapter 32, verse 11. Moses implored, the Lord is God, said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people who you brought out of the land of Egypt? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent, did he bring them out to kill them on the mountain, to consume them from the face of the earth? And then he says, remember your covenant. And in verse 14, the Lord relented. And you see again, if you look at chapter 33, verse 12, Moses' second intercession, he said, see, you say to me, bring up this people, you have not let me know. I know you by name, I found you favor in my sight. Now they say, if I found favor, please show me your way. Consider too that this nation is your people. And then look in verse 16. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said, this very thing I will do. Do you see what Moses is doing in both of those intercessions? He's saying, Lord, think of what the nations will think. Egypt will say, you're a God who just brought them out to destroy them. What about your name? And then in chapter 33, but, but Lord, what makes us different? What will make the nations marvel? What makes us distinct as a people is that you're with us. What about your name? And so in both cases, the Lord says, I agree with that, Moses. The reason for mercy and then the reason for judgment are the same reason. God acts to uphold and vindicate the glory and honor 
of his name. That's why it's not incidental that in both of these revelations, 33 and 34, it begins by saying he proclaimed his name. What you need to know is that I'm the one you need to know. And surely it's not incidental to this passage in our understanding of it that verse 14 says the name of the Lord is jealous. God refuses to be replaced by any rival. He is a jealous God. doesn't mean he's insecure, he's petty as we might be jealous. It means he knows his own worth and that the honor of his name is above all things and that what is best for his people is that his name be honored. If his name is jealous, Think of what, what does jealousy produce? Jealousy produces two things. Love. I love you so much. I, 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 I want you like no one else. Love, and it produces anger. When that love is torn apart, when the vow is broken, when you forsake your covenant. And so it is with God. Do you see how it is the, the, his jealousy for his own name that leads to mercy and leads to judgment? So it's not these warring things. All the time, in every way, God is working for the honor and the vindication of His name. He's a jealous God. And if you think, I don't know if I like a jealous God. Listen, I bet you would, I would rather have a jealous spouse than one who is kind of chill and understanding. Meaning, if you commit adultery, with someone else, really, what, what's the measure of your spouse's love? Do you, do you want him or her to say, what happened? Oh, man. You know what? We decided long ago we were going to have a, kind of an open relationship. And you know what? Was it? Well, I, I hope there was something meaningful for you there, and I hope we can still have something meaningful together. Would you feel loved in that? That would be worse. That kind of indifference, that kind of openness to betrayal would be worse. I'd rather have a spouse that, that loves with a fierce, passionate, unrelenting love that would say in such a situation, how dare you? Because I gave everything to you. and I love you from the very depths of my heart. And so it is with God. His name is Jealous. Mercy and judgment don't exist as two warring factions in God, like he's got, a, you know, the good angel and he's got a little devil on this shoulder. No, they express what it means for God to be the only God, to be a God of fierce and forgiving covenant love. God is for us because he is for himself, and that's a good thing. We know these two things can exist because we see them both in the golden calf episode, don't we? He will by no means clear the guilty. He doesn't wink at sin. We've already seen 3,000 people died. Sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. So he by no means just shrugs his shoulders and says, eh, it's a golden calf, no big deal. And yet he has shown himself to be merciful and gracious and forgiving because he's going with them. He's restored the covenant. We see all throughout the Bible, God does not clear the guilty. He does not shrug his shoulders at sin. There are covenant curses. Moses won't get to the promised land. There are sacrifices to atone to sin. Eventually, Israel will be exiled to Babylon. 
does not clear the guilty. He's a God of justice and a God of mercy. And it's the very same problem that Paul labored to solve in Romans chapter 3. How can God justify the ungodly? How can he show mercy to sinners? How can he forgive rebellious, wicked people and yet still be just? How can verse 6 and verse 7 of Exodus 34 both be true? And you know Paul's answer? Because Christ died on the cross. That God might be just and the justifier of the ungodly. So God has not cleared the guilty. He has not winked at any of your sins. He has not shrugged his shoulders at any of our rebellion. It has all been paid for. So in the cross, as the psalmist said, justice and mercy meet. And in the cross then, God's character is fully revealed because what we see and may even have been something of a mystery to the Israelites, gracious, loving, forgiving, and yet you don't clear the guilty. How does that work? In the cross we see how it works. Everything we see revealed about God at Sinai we see even more clearly revealed in God's Son. So here we close. Have you seen this God in Christ? Have you heard this God? Have you encountered this God? He takes sin more seriously than you dare to imagine. And He can remove your sin farther than you ever thought possible. He is free and He is fierce. He is kinder and more compassionate than your sweetest friend. He does not always fit what we want Him to be but He is always much better than we even knew to ask. He is the God of holy love, and He is your God in Christ. And what is our response? I'll give you one point of application, and it's found in verse 8. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Some, sometimes that is the application of the sermon. What do I do? Do I need to go do something? I need to read about? No, no. You need to encounter this God, you need to see this God, you need to hear this God, you need to know this God in the person of Jesus Christ, and bow your head and worship. Obedience, yes, that's a response. Walking in the covenant love, yes, that's a response. But it starts and it all flows from this first response, which is worship. That we would see God as He wants to be known and we would say, you are my God. And I will worship you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your many great and precious promises. You could have left us in the dark, in a cloud of unknowing, but you have spoken to us. You have shown us your glory, your goodness, your character. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for making yourself known at Sinai and even more fully in your Son, in whose name we pray and worship. Amen.